Oh God, we need you this morning. Lord, we pray as we gather today, Lord, we've been exposed all week long to false promises and various temptations. Now we desperately need your word to anchor us. We pray you use your word to both encourage and even pierce us with conviction today. Lord, I pray that we would be a more faithful people today after this message, after looking at your word. So be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Halloween is just around the corner, and Americans are projected to spend over $10.5 billion this Halloween. The average consumer uh, is projected to spend about $100 each uh, on candy and decorations and costumes. It's a lot of money. Uh, Now, this isn't a message on canceling Halloween. Uh, That's not my particular position on what some would consider a disputable matter. Uh, I think there's a a right way uh, of doing it and using it as a gospel opportunity. Me and my family will be out trick-or-treating in a few weeks, engaging with neighbors, building relationships. Even our our church, we're doing a big fall festival on October 29th and using that as an opportunity to to build relationships with people who don't know Jesus or who haven't uh, uh, found a church home. But one of my favorite aspects, at least with my family uh, during this time of year, um, are the costumes. Uh, me and my family usually pick a theme. My wife does a phenomenal job at this. Last year we did Toy Story, and, uh, and this year uh, we are going with the theme of Peter Pan. I know you're on uh, the edge of your seat there. Um, but my, my oldest uh, is going to be Wendy. Uh, uh, Lila is going to be Tinkerbell. Uh, Lindsay, I think, will be Tiger Lily. Uh, little Milo is going to be Peter Pan. He's in a huge Peter Pan phase right now. And then for me, it depends on how my kids are feeling about me that day. I could either be Hook or, or a lost boy. Uh, it just depends on, on how they feel about me that day. But we already have our costume. And uh, again, Milo's in a huge Peter Pan phase, so he's already wearing that Peter Pan outfit. And it's hilarious. He's, he's two. And, uh, and so when he puts on that costume, he, he believes that he's Peter Pan. Like he's, he's trying to be just like him. He's jumping off furniture, pretending to fly. He's picking up little sticks and branches, like you know, pretending it's Peter Pan's dagger. He's looking for Hook around every corner. He wants me to actually pretend to be Hook so he can kind of stab me with his, with his little dagger there. And it's, it's really funny, but he's not fooling anybody. Like we know his true identity. He's not Peter Pan. He's Milo, right? He can pretend to be Peter Pan all that he wants, but we know who he truly is. Now, the idea of pretending to be someone that you're not is what comes to my mind when I read Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. See, the reality is, is that Halloween is not the only time that people pretend to be someone that they're not. Uh, there is a temptation that all of us face of wanting to project an image of ourselves for others to believe when in reality we're nowhere near that projected image. That we have a temptation to want to to convince others of being a certain type of person when in reality we're nowhere near that person. That we have a, a temptation to want to wear a costume, if you will, want to dress ourselves up to make ourselves look better. Now, the New Testament specifically warns the church of this extreme danger when teachers and the leaders of the church, people with influence, do this, when they pretend 
to be someone that they're not. In fact, there's a, a category that the Bible provides for us of when leaders of the church do this. They, they call them false teachers. They call them false prophets even. Jesus' exact description is a wolf in sheep's clothing. A wolf, think about it, a wolf dressed up in the costume of a sheep. That's an interesting image, isn't it? When you, when you stop and you actually consider, you've got two of the most diametrically opposed animals, a wolf and a sheep. And yet Jesus uses this, this image, this complete contrast in nature to explain the danger of false teachers. Matthew 7.15, Jesus uses this, this expression to kind of warn us that there are those wolves who dress up as sheep, who, who appear harmless, who appear even kind, and yet that's just a facade. It's there just to kind of hide their malicious intents. This is no two-year-old who is harmlessly dressing up and pretending to be Peter Pan. No, these individuals, they might appear to be kind, they might appear to be harmless, but they're easily trusted. They're able to gain the confidence of those unsuspecting, and yet they use it for selfish gain and destructive purposes. This is exactly what was happening to the church in Crete. So Paul here is writing in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. He helps the church and he helps us today be able to identify what does a spiritual wolf look like? And then secondly, what are we to do once we recognize them? So those are the two main points that we're going to look at as we walk through this passage this morning. The first thing, again, is to identify uh, a spiritual uh, wolf. Now, there are five descriptions here that Paul gives to us to, to be able to identify what this looks like. Before we look at the first one here, at the quantity, I want to point out the word uh, that's in verse 10, the first word there, which is the word for. I want to always try to um, point out the word for because it's a connecting word. It's really important because it's, it's taking our passage this morning and that word is, is trying to tip us and say, hey, this passage is actually directly connected with the passage that came before it. In other words, chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul is saying, hey, one of the qualifications of an elder is they must be sound in doctrine. They need to be sound in doctrine so they're able to teach and so they're able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. And so now Paul is saying, hey, let me describe for you the kind of people, the kind of person that, uh, that, that wants to contradict sound doctrine. So these two passages are actually very much connected. And what he's describing here is likely the same group of people uh, that he will get to at the end of chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. So notice, five descriptors here. The first one is the quantity and what we learn here, uh, even in verse 10, is that they are numerically strong. Paul actually describes them as that there, there are many who fit in this camp. Now, that's very problematic for a young church, that there are many who are contradicting sound doctrine. And specifically, Paul identifies them in verse 10 as those from the circumcision party, so these are likely individuals who are uh, Jewish converts. They have a Jewish background, and they were trying to merge Judaism with Christianity. 
Now, that's a problem, and that's a problem for the church, but that's even a problem specifically for Titus, because if you remember, Titus is not Jewish. Titus is not, he's not circumcised. And so they're undermining even his authority, and these false teachers are gaining more and more influence. There's a lot of them. Now, the second descriptor here uh, is centered on their character. In stark contrast to the character of an elder in verses 5 through 9, the character of a false teacher is abysmal. Verse 12, Paul even quotes a Cretan prophet who's trying to, to describe a kind of the basic morality of the society. And that Cretan prophet describes them as always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Paul says, yeah, that's true. That testimony is accurate in describing these kinds of people. And this is important because the false teaching of a, of a spiritual wolf is so persuasive, it's so effective, it's very cunning, that one of the best ways to identify a spiritual wolf is to actually look at their character or, or lack thereof, to look at the, the spiritual fruits, if you will. Jesus actually instructs us to do that from Matthew chapter 7. He, he says, you will know them by their fruits, that a bad tree cannot bear good fruit and a good tree cannot bear bad fruits. Now, we're all in, pro in process here. We're all sinners. And so the question is, what kind of bad fruit should we be looking for that might lead us into identifying a spiritual wolf? Well, Paul helps us here. He provides a few details. The first one here is that they are insubordinates. Look at verse 10 with me. This is the, the first word to describe their character. This is actually the same word that Paul used in chapter 1, verse 6, to describe the behavior of a, of a child of an elder that would actually disqualify that elder from being a leader in the church. We looked at this word last week. This is not to mean the occasional disobedience, but this means to engage in outright mutiny. This is a, a person who is very rebellious. Again, this is not the occasional disgruntled attitude or misstep, but it's a person whose very posture is set against another with a calculated plan of disobedience. Another feature of their character, they're not only insubordinate, but secondly, verse 15, their mind and their conscience have been defiled. This is due to ongoing, unrepentant sin their mind and conscience have been defiled, which means to become corrupt. Now, Paul actually provides more color to this in 1 Timothy. I'm going I'm to um, um, allude and, and kind of even quote 1 Timothy from time to time this morning because they're so similar. But Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This is really important. Uh, each person's conscience, your conscience, my conscience, serves to control or direct our actions and our decisions. And as a controller or as a filter, the conscience is able to show which actions and decisions are right and wrong which are good and which are bad, which are pure, which are impure. And Paul is arguing that it's actually possible for our consciences to become so dominated by sin 
that they become broken, that they become dull, that they become corrupt and defiled to the point where they're no longer able to distinguish what is right and wrong, what is pure and impure. This is exactly what was happening to the false teachers. Their consciences were no longer working. Now, another description of their character in verse 16 is that their good works are empty and absent. Good works are empty and absent. Look look with me at verse 16. It says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. What Paul's describing here is that there's an empty confession of knowing God. In other words, when, when, when you hear somebody confess to actually knowing God, being in a relationship with God, the result should be a life filled with spiritual fruits, should be a, a life filled with good works. But for false teachers, they claim to know God, but when you look into their life, you, you see just emptiness. It's hollow, vacant of any type of good work. Now, not to say that our good works save us, or justify us before a holy God. No, faith in Jesus does. But our good works prove that our faith is genuine. For the false teacher, though, their good works are not only absent, but their lives are being described here as detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In other words, their character is so marred by sin that they no longer have the capacity to do that, that which is good and right and pleasing to God unless it's self-serving. Okay, so we've seen the quantity, we've seen the character. Here's the third descriptor. Notice their impact. Paul, again, is trying to describe the profile of a spiritual wolf, and he now starts to speak about their influence. Now, if their impact and influence was minimal, Paul wouldn't need to write about this. Their impact was enormous, He describes it in verse 11 as their ministry leading to actually upsetting whole families. Now, this is not to mean that that there are some families who are disgruntled about their teaching, kind of complaining about the, the lack of effectiveness of their teaching. No, what this means is that they were disrupting various pockets within the church. That word upset could actually mean to uproot. And so they were uprooting various people in this, in this church from sound doctrine, from the truth, and leading them to unhealthy or false doctrine. Now, the reason why that's the meaning here is, is because the church structure at this church, that they met in the homes of families in the church. So there's a bunch of house churches going on here, and that was the, the primary um, kind, of, kind of environment for teaching. So these false teachers are coming in with their false teaching and they're upsetting or uprooting these families, these individuals from the truth. And it was actually leading them, according to verse 14, to turning away from the truth. So catch this, the the false teachers, they they were so effective in, in actually changing the spiritual appetite of God's people So they no longer want, they no longer desire sound doctrine, meaty truth, truth that was centered on Jesus and obedience to God. They didn't want any of that anymore. They wanted their their ears tickled. They wanted to to feel good about themselves. Specifically here, they wanted the the Jewish myths. They wanted the, the Jewish law obscurities. And Paul warned that this would happen. 
Paul warned the, the church at Ephesus when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's a great summary of what was happening here at the church at Crete. Their impact was enormous. But not only that, notice their methodology. But look at their, their tactics or their, their strategy here in verse 10. Paul describes them as empty talkers and deceivers. These are important descriptors in understanding what is their methodology, what is their strategy here as false teachers utilize the empty talk and the deception as they set the bait and start to reel in their catch. Empty talkers means to engage in meaningless talk. It's actually the same phrase used in 1 Timothy 1.6, where it's translated there as vain discussions. That's a great strategy. The false teachers, they selected teaching topics where they're saying a lot of words, they're using a lot of language, but there's no spiritual substance. There's no conviction. There's no, there's no power. It sounds impressive, but when you get closer and you start to press a little bit, it's hollow. But not only that, their, their methodology hinged on deception. This means to intentionally mislead. So they know what they're doing. They're very purposeful in their trickery. They're, they're very calculated and, and planned. Now, while it's true that there have been many great falsehoods that have existed throughout the church over the years, many of those falsehoods do not announce themselves as such. In other words, false teachers do not walk around with a sign on their forehead saying, false teacher, be aware. False teacher, do not believe anything that I have to say. That's not their tactic. That's not their strategy. They're much more subtle. They are sneaky. They sow seeds of doubt. They twist the truth and the scriptures to make it more attractive and to make it more acceptable. I mentioned this last week, but re remember that the first words recorded in the Bible that Satan ever uttered, it's actually the same words. It's the, it's the first recorded uh, words of false teaching. Remember what Satan said to Eve there in Genesis? He, he does not say to her, God is not real. How in the world do you believe in him? Or God has not spoken. How can you believe in all this nonsense? No, it's way more subtle than that. It's sneaky. He says, did God really say? He acknowledges the existence of God. He acknowledges that God has spoken, but he sows some seeds of doubt. He twists the truth and tries to lead her away from the clarity and the authority of God's word. And false teachers, do that, they use that exact same strategy here in their subtlety and in the sneakiness of luring God's people away. But not only are they subtle, but they also love using novelty as part of their, uh, part of, part of their methodology. They're promising something new that can unlock your spiritual life. Try this new truth. Try this new approach and you'll be close to God. 
And it's so attractive. It's innovative. It's fresh. It's new. All the while, their teaching lures people away one empty promise at a time. And then finally, look at the fifth one here, the fifth descriptor. Notice their motives. Their motives. This is more difficult to recognize, but it's worth mentioning that there is evil driving their actions. Their motives are self-serving and despicable. Paul describes it in verse 11 as teaching for why, why did they do this? For shameful gain. In other words, they were financially profiting off the back of heretical teaching. And this is what the people wanted. This is what they craved. This is what they, they were yearning for. And so they're just giving them what they wanted. And as a result, they're gaining the confidence of the people and their wallets. Look, it bears mentioning here that spiritual wolves do not have your best in mind. That they will tell you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. That they will tickle your, your ears, but they will not tickle your consciences. That they will make you feel good about yourself, but they will avoid conviction and challenge and exhortation. That they will actually assure you that your feelings are, are not only real, but your feelings should be authoritative in how you live your life and not God's word. And they do all this so they can gain. They do all this because they're self-serving. They do not love the sheep because true love will always speak the truth no matter how difficult. Look, they don't care if you go to hell as long as they profit off of it. This is the profile. This is the identity of a spiritual wolf. The quantity, the character, the impact, the method, and the motive. But it begs the question, now what? When God's people identify a spiritual wolf, how ought God's people to respond? What's the response here? Paul is very clear here that in verse 13, he commands the church. This is not an option. This is an exhortation. This is a command. Rebuke them sharply. This literally means to correct them rigorously. This is why in verse 11, he tells them to actually silence them, which means to muzzle or to gag. And so you take these two ideas, these two verses, and the response when the church recognizes a spiritual wolf is to provide such a strong rebuke that it shuts their mouths in the hope that they'll change. That's important because by shutting their mouths, you're removing their ministry, you're removing their influence, you're removing their identity in the hope that they will repent. And that's important. But notice here, we're not to tolerate them. We're not to kind of baby them. We are to rebuke them and silence them strongly. And this is why these two passages are connected from last week to this week. This is why the church needs men who are in the roles of leadership described in verses 6 through 9, who, yes, are godly, but are fearless, who, yes, are kind, but are strong, who are, yes, gentle, but have convictions, who are humble, but who are bold, 
That the church needs men who love the glory of God, who love God's people so much that they are not afraid to lay down a strong rebuke when necessary. And the motivation here is out of love. The motivation here, verse 13, is so that they'll turn back to sound doctrine and in the faith. Okay, so the motivation is not for Titus to be right and they're wrong and to rub it in their face. It's not for Titus to kind of flex his pastoral authority and put these individuals in line. No, it has a corrective aim of drawing them back into sound doctrine and to protect the church. That is the response the church must have in identifying a spiritual wolf. Okay, now we know what a false teacher looks like. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. We know how the church ought to respond, but this morning, let me close by pulling out just a few more applications from this passage that I think are worth mentioning. Here's the first one here. I think we need to realize that the biggest danger the church faces is not outside the church, but it's actually inside the church. I am struck by how in Titus, and, and even when we looked at Second Peter a few months ago, specifically in chapter 2, how these false teachers are within the church. They are among God's people. There's a lot of ink spilled throughout the New Testament warning the church, kind of being dedicated to being on guard against false teachers. Matthew 7, 2 Corinthians 11, Acts 20, Galatians 1, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 4, Jude, 2 John, 2 Peter 2. It's almost in every letter. And the reality is, if this was a problem for the first century church, literally being pastored by apostles, not, not, not even three or four decades from when Jesus resurrected and ascended, how much more of a problem is this for us today? So we can't just assume that this isn't an issue here. You know, in 2022, we need to be on guard. In fact, Paul warns the church at Ephesus in Acts 20 of this, He says, pay careful attention. He's talking to the elders at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Be alert. About a month ago, the Pew Research Center released some startling statistics about the future of Christianity in this country. I don't know if you saw these, but it basically said despite uh, the majority have long chosen Christianity as their religion, by 2070, that may may no longer be the case. That if trends persist, Christians could make up less than half the population and as little as a third of the population in 50 years. I was talking to somebody about this report. We were lamenting, and rightfully so, lamenting this. We were talking about how, yes, it seems like true converts to the faith of Jesus is, is dwindling, that the influence that Christianity is having on the culture is uh, is, is, is becoming more and more minimized. 
And, and we were just lamenting this, like the, the culture that our kids and our, our grandkids will be growing up in, how, how difficult it will be for them to, to be faithful to the gospel, how just morally dark it's becoming out there. And I think it's worth lamenting over. But church, we should never fear that our response to, to everything that's happening out there should never cause us to respond in fear. That when we respond in fear to whatever happens out in the world, whether it's cultural or political, we are actually making the gospel of Jesus Christ look so fragile. We are making God's power look so weak when his people freak out about what's happening out there. That church, we need to be reminded of one of the most powerful promises Jesus ever gave was that God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. No matter how few there are of us out there who are faithfully following Jesus, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather have a minority of true Christians who are sold out for the gospel than a majority who are kind of half in. Like our response to whatever happens out there, if these statistics bear to be true in 50 years, should never be fear because we know who wins in the end. Who wins in the end? It's, it's not the government. It's not liberalism. It's not any political party. Last time I read Revelation, King Jesus wins in the end. That he and he alone conquered the grave. He and he alone is sitting on the throne with all power and all authority. That he and he alone is the one to whom every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord, that he is King. He alone is worthy of all praise, all worship, all honor, all glory forever and ever. So no reason to fear. We know who wins. And yes, yes, it's getting darker out there. Yes, it will become more and more difficult to be faithful to Jesus. But church, be reminded of what we've been promised. We have not been promised an easy life. We have not been promised to win every culture war and every cultural battle. We have been promised a king. A king whose victory is sure, whose rule has no end, and whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And this king promises to empower his people and to be with his people to the end of the age. Look, our greatest danger and problem is not out there. If persecution comes, it will come. Historically, the church has thrived in those horrific circumstances. Our biggest threat is what happens inside the church. That which appears right and good and it's not. That's our biggest threat. Our biggest threat are people inside the church who want to minimize the preeminence of Jesus who want to water down the truth of God's word, who, who, who long for these fluffy, garbage-type Christian cliches. 
Look, those things will not enable endurance when suffering comes. Water down Christianity, that will not enable you to persevere when persecution comes. Water down Christianity is no Christianity at all. Be on guard. Well, another thing that really stuck out to me in this passage was just noticing the gap between the belief and the behavior of false teachers. Now, the reality is we all have gaps in our relationship with the Lord and how we work out our faith. But the gap here, man, it it is alarming and seismic as Paul was explaining the character and the behavior of these false teachers. And we all have distance. We all have these gaps between what we claim to believe about the Bible, about obedience to God, and actually living out those beliefs. We all have them. But it begs the question, what does this look like in your own life? Like we can look at the false teachers and that's great. But I think a great application is how big are those gaps in your life? When you think about what you believe and then the consistency of actually living out those beliefs, how many gaps do you have and how large are they? By God's grace, we are called to, to repent and to pursue godliness and close those gaps as much as possible so we are living a consistent Christian life. But if you, if you claim to believe that God calls his people to living a life of godliness and you're not godly at all, that's a problem. If you claim to believe in God's sovereignty and yet your life is filled with worry, that's a problem. That's a gap. If you claim to believe in God's forgiveness and grace, and yet you are living in shame and you're not living in freedom and in obedience and righteousness, that, that's a problem. If you believe in God's promises and yet live in fear, that is a problem. Do you see? These gaps and the distance between what we claim to believe and how we actually live those out. Look, one of the greatest ways that you can avoid being a spiritual wolf and you can avoid the spiritual wolf's teaching is by closing those gaps, being a consistent follower of Jesus and not having sin reign in your life. Because when sin reigns in your life, guess what that does? That changes the spiritual appetites in your heart. You no longer want sound doctrine. You no longer want meaty truth. Man, you want that, that teaching that will that will scratch those itching ears. Or what Paul said, you will find teaching that suits your own desires. And it's subtle and it's slow. It's gradual how you come to that place. And that's why godliness is so very important. That godliness, you're not only being obedient to what the word of God says, but it serves as a protection against false teaching and not buying what they're selling. So be aware of the gaps in your own life. And then thirdly, I'll close with this, is prioritize teaching of the word of God that makes you uncomfortable, that makes you uncomfortable. Look, there is a reason why our passage this morning is sandwiched between two important verses. Chapter one, verse nine, emphasis of sound doctrine. Chapter two, verse one, which we'll look at in a couple weeks, Paul says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Isn't that interesting? Sandwiched between these two verses, emphasizing sound doctrine, 
meaty truth. And look, you do not need to be a scholar. You do not need to have degrees in theology. You need to be equipped, though, and ready to stand against heresies and false doctrines. Listen to Paul's advice in 2 Timothy 3. He says, while evil people and while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Learned, believed, knowing. Look, Christianity is not just a faith of feeling. It's not just a faith of emotions. The Christian faith is one of learning, believing, and knowing. And we do those things through the word of God. And look, this application is not, hey, read the Bible every day. That's a good one. I hope that you're doing that. The application here is a little bit more nuanced. I want to challenge you today as you read and soak in the word of God to not just gravitate toward passages in the Bible or teachings or sermons or resources that only encourage you. Those are good. Those are fine. But don't just gravitate towards teachings that make you feel warm and good on the inside. I want to challenge you to sit under the authority of God's word with passages that make you uncomfortable, that make you uncomfortable because there's conviction because there's exhortation, because those passages are helping to identify the gaps in your life so that by God's grace, you can actually close them. Here's the reality. The problem in this whole topic is not just the spiritual wolf. The problem is also the people of God who no longer want sound doctrine, who no longer want to be convicted, they want their ears itched. They want the watered-down garbage to reinforce their sinful behavior. Man, I don't know about you. Man, I, I want the passages that kick my tail end. Because if you're... If you're just finding passages, if you're just finding resources and teachings that reinforce these good feelings about yourself, what good are those if you're going to hell? Man, I, I want to be shown my need for Jesus. I want to be shown that I'm a needy sinner for his grace. I want to be convicted and I want to be stirred to living a more godly life. And so I just want to remind you that the word of God, it is alive and it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to discern the intentions and the motives of your hearts. And so when you open it, when you hear it being taught, when you're reading it, you as a faithful follower of Jesus should want to be pierced by it. You should be begging God to convict you of his truth, to sit under it and to be shown the gaps in your life so that you might repent. So church, use discernment. That's my challenge for you today. Wisely discern what you allow to have influence over your heart and your mind and how you think 
and how you live. Let the word of God be the primary source that shapes you and conforms you to the image of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise for your relevant, authoritative, sufficient word. God, we are so thankful that your word not only shows us ourselves, but shows us who you are. Lord, I pray for a deeper hunger for it, Lord, at this church. I pray for every person in this room that you would give us a yearning and a craving for it, Lord, that we would wake up in the morning and that we would want your word to come into our lives. Lord, help us not to ignore that desire. Help us to be faithful to sit under, to sit under it, to receive it gladly, and to be doers of your word and not just hearers. We pray in Christ's name, amen.